You're listening to a podcast from Meaning of Life TV. Well, welcome to the Blogging Heads audience, and specifically to the Sophia audience. Um, I am here once again with uh, David Ottlinger, uh, and we're going to have a discussion today about, uh, actually the first of two discussions uh, about classical liberalism and its place in, and, 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 and first classical liberalism on its own, and then classical liberalism relative to the United States. Um, uh, was it ever classically liberal? Is it still classically liberal? Did it used to be classically liberal and stop being classically liberal? All that sort of good stuff. Um, let's do, do introductions. So um, uh, I'm, I'm Daniel Kaufman. I'm a professor of philosophy at Missouri State. And I also uh, publish an ma online magazine called The Electric Agora. Uh, and you, David Ottlinger, are one of our star writers. <laughs> You're too kind. Um, yes. Um, who are you again? What do you? What my are you, name is David Notlinger. <laughs> I did a bachelor's in philosophy at the University of Chicago, and I studied for a while at Georgia State University, also in philosophy. And I've been a contributor from at the Electric Agora since its uh, inception. And you do. I don't even. I, I don't know. I, we didn't talk. We haven't talked that much about your Georgia State days, but. Was political philosophy your main focus in graduate school? Alas, not at all, because uh, I say alas because it's sort of a bastion of uh, libertarian philosophy. With, uh, at Georgia State, I didn't know that. That's interesting. Like Randians or like smarter libertarians? <laughs> I'd like to think smarter. Although, uh, a little birdie told me that uh, A.I. Cohen at least has some kind of things to say about Rand. I've never heard him say it himself, so I don't want to... Um, if he says it, the reason I asked whether it was your focus is only because it seems in the Electric Agora that a lot, if not most, of what you write does center around classical liberalism and its defense against the contemporary left-wing sort of thought, which is very illiberal, in your opinion, as well as in my opinion. Um... So that's why I wondered whether this is actually your area, or... I used to be a happy wanderer going around thinking about Kant in cellars, and then this damn election happened, and there was all the protests of last year, and, uh, yeah, love calls us to the things of this world, and it just... Yeah. Yeah, and you're, al you're as alarmed as I am by what's going on on college campuses, and, and people like Jonathan Haidt and others are also very alarmed by it. Um... Um, and I just, you know, just last thing to ask you before we go on to our subject, um, was there a lot of this sort of activism at Georgia State? You know, that's interesting. Um, when you're being part of a program, you get fairly insulated from the student body. There were, we had big Occupy protests, and um, it was on the big quad um, in the middle, it's a very urban campus, and um, <clears throat> there were tents and stuff there for a long time, and I was not there. It happened in the middle of the night, but there were <clears throat> helicopters. There are some dorms right there in the, on, in, right near campus in the urban areas, so students were telling me about it. <clears throat> there were 
apparently helicopters and like cops with riot shields marching. Shoulder. Oh, so there was like a big deal, a big. They pushed him out of the park. Um, and just recently, because um, I've been writing about the student protests and stuff, the big fall of 2015 when political correctness became a big debate again. There's a website, I think it's called The Demands, where they put together all the student demands from around the country. <laughs> and there were like three from the Atlanta area. Huh. And they were, it, you see how amorphous these groups are? They couldn't quite all get together. There was like a, <clears throat> uh, it's like a, I forget what, it's like the Atlanta college system, there's some acronym. I'll say it's ACL, I forget what it stands for, something like that. But it was like ACL shut it down was one, and then there was like Black Lives Matter of Atlanta, and they all couldn't quite get together. Right. Which was really interesting to watch. And they had different statements that ran parallel. But there was this one statement um, where they named it shows how this debate is different than the 1990 debate. It centers around different things. We're no longer talking about canon in quite the same way. Yeah. You know, whether Chinua Achebe is as good as, uh, uh, you know, Ernest Hemingway or right. something like that. But, Remember Saul Bellow made some remark about the Proust of the Papuans or something like you know, that. Uh, <laughs> who is, I, that was in Ta-Nehisi Coates' book. It's, uh, who is the Tolstoy of the Zulu? Uh, are you is, sure it wasn't Proust of the Papuans? I mean, <laughs> he, he may have had more than one. The one Coates quotes is, who is the Tolstoy of the two? Um, um, yeah. Right, so there was a lot of stuff like that back in the 90s. It was like, yeah. why are we teaching only dead white males? Right. Blah, blah, blah. But it wasn't this sort of trigger warning. It wasn't this very sort of imminent demand, this sort of you know trigger warnings and chasing people off campus and trying to get people fired and, and just all this sort of... Well, I think this stuff, it also is more focused on stuff off campus, like the police. Yeah, of, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, Trayvon Martin and all of the different things we saw in recent events. But this one, this one demand named, it talked about how many unarmed black people get, or how many black people get killed by police, and it gave three specific names. And I looked it up in the um, Atlanta Journal-Constitution, which is like the lead paper down there. And one of them was somebody who had gotten to the back of a car, was in the back of a cop car, slipped out of her cuffs, and shot at an officer. One of them was a guy who worked at, um, <coughs> worked at um, a mechanics, and he saw a cop was coming to serve for the subpoena. So he got into, he got stole one of the cars that had been left there and apparently tried to ram an officer. Good grief. And the third one was genuinely sad. It was the guy called the cops, and the cops showed up and his dog attacked the cops. So the cops shot his dog, but then he ran out the door, upset about his dog, understandably, but waving a gun. And they shot him, too. And they shot him. So those were the three poster children that the students of, you know, Georgia State or in the surrounding colleges yeah, yeah. chose. So, yeah, so 
just as a case in point about why I do get along. Yeah. Yeah, no, I wondered whether your interest was probably because, you know, you were seeing stuff on your own campus that was kind of alarming you. I certainly, the last two years, have been very alarmed by what I've been seeing on campus. And my campus is really mild compared to, you know, places like Yale and stuff like that, where it just seems to be complete madness. Um, and, we, and we are going to talk about this in the second. The second dialogue is going to be about what sort of happened with classical liberalism in the United States, if it ever was classically liberal. That's something that, you know, may not be obvious. Um, but today we're going to be pretty much more strictly speaking philosophy and less and not politics. Um, um, and so, why don't we? You, you want to, why, why don't we start with? I'll I'll throw out my uh, oversimplified definition or account of uh, classical liberalism, and then you can sort of um, you can sort of come 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 back and fill it in and add and subtract and all that. How about that? Um, so, I. And, you know, everything, these sorts of things are always a matter of how they were taught to you, right? Mm -hmm. um, um, I, I, I'm not sure if, if people in the audience realize how much that is the case. I mean, even with, you know, very high-ranking, very famous philosophers, if you poke around and find out, well, why is he approach the subject this way, you probably find out that it was taught to him that way when he was either an undergraduate or a graduate student. I always, my go-to for classical liberalism is always John Locke, Second Treatise of Government, um, and actually, not just the Secretary of the Government, also a little bit from the inquiry, uh, the essay concerning human understanding. Um, and so I, I came up with four bullets. And so you tell me. Essay concerning understanding, also by John Locke. Yeah, also by John Locke. I'm sorry. Um, I came up with four bullets. And why don't you tell me what you think of this um, as a sort of characterization of classical liberalism? So, first is the idea that the individual self is fully realized and identifiable separately from anyone else. That is, we don't define the individual person in terms of his or her relations either to his group or to his class or to his religion or to his family. We define the individual with respect to his own interior consciousness, right? And that comes straight out of Locke's theory of personal identity, right? Um, the second is that the individual is the fundamental unit of social reality, that... that, that that the group is simply a collection of individuals that have made various agreements with each other. Um, the third is that the individual is the sole locus of natural authority, that all the authority that exists, and authority by authority we mean the right to exercise power over others. To the extent to which there's a authority in society, it has to come from somewhere, and where it comes from is the natural authority that every individual has over him or herself. Right. Uh, and then the last is the idea that when we're talking about society, the chief aim of society is to facilitate the individual's pursuit of his or her own good. Right? Um, that that's really the only reason for having society, that it's just simply because we just can't quite get along enough in the state of nature, that is, in a state of anarchy, that we have to form societies. But in doing so, we can only justify the most minimal sort of form of society, um, just enough so that every, indiv every individual person can pursue his or her own good without molestation by the others. So what do you think of those four bullets as sort of a, a cluster characterization of what is meant by classical liberalism? I think it gets us, um, you know, it, I think it does what four bullet definitions are supposed to do, <laughs> which is it gets, us in, it gets us in the neighborhood, right? Uh-huh. So, yeah. Um, and I think it's particularly helpful because... Um, 
some of them will demand qualification in a way that um, uh, is elucidating. Um, so even if, yeah, we may need to qualify them, but each one of these, I think, substantially points at something important about the tradition. So we will, I expect, be talking about John Locke's Second Treatise of Government. Yeah. I expect as we uh, go through, we may also be talking about um, uh, John Stuart Mill's On Liberty, which offers um, a much later, uh, about two centuries later, um, maybe more nuanced. Yes, yeah, so I was going to ask. I mean, if you ask me, you know, what are the what are the core texts of classical liberalism? The two I would identify as the two most would be Locke's Second Treatise of Government, and the second would be Mill's On Liberty. Um, and you've done quite a bit of work, actually, for us, invoking Mill's On Liberty. Yeah. So maybe a good a useful thing would be for you to tell me. In what way does Mill either develop or deviate from the four bullets that I just gave? Um, insofar as he is, and he is coming after Locke by a decent amount of time. So, what's different in On Liberty than what's going on in Secretary of the Government and, and those four bullets that I that I identified? Well, Mill, and part of what I think accounts for the great. Uh, cultural and political relevance of Mill at this moment is he very much is concerned with political culture. Um, so beyond the formal negotiation of what goes on in, for, for lack of the parliament for us, Congress and local, you know, legislatures and town halls and things like that, there are all the, uh, the much much too often used and much abused word norms, but you know, there are norms of discourse, norms of conversation. Um, you're talking about civil society proper, rather yeah. than the formal institutions of the state, is what you're sort of talking about. Thanks. And then Mill is concerned with liberalism as it operates within that sphere of, of life. Yes. Whereas yeah. Locke's is very formal, it's about the institutions, it's about how we get the institutions, where they derive their authority. Mill's already imagining we're in a full-fledged society. How does liberty? How does liberalism work within that rich environment? I, I, I can't help but say um, he's not imagining it so much. No, right. He pretty much is. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. There's still some fights over you know what the proper scope of Congress was, and even at, by the time he's writing on liberty, but but it wasn't like when Locke was writing when there was actually right. civil, you know, civil. Yes, Locke was, you know, contemplating civil war, and um, they got civil war, of course, not, not um, well, let me see, uh, less than 20 years later, um, twenty less than 20 years after the writing of the Second Treatise on Government. So, um, so yes, he, he is in mill, that is, is in a regular fairly stable society. He's writing a book that's meant to be uh, published and distributed and read by thoughtful, intelligent people in the same way Robert Putnam writes books. Yeah. 
or whoever you know the big political person of the day is you you know educated people right not 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 for a technical audience so to speak but for an educated lay audience if you want to call it that yeah yeah, yeah. and in not addressing an immediate incipient crisis but a sort of laying a general political agenda that's not supposed to get enacted tomorrow but is supposed to you know develop in the consciousness and hopefully influence people's decisions you know so how okay so Locke is writing at a time of tremendous political turn you know change and turmoil <coughs> this also by the way is true of the other social contractarians of Hobbes before Locke mm -hmm. and of Rousseau after Locke Mill is writing in the and so as a result they're they're going to be focused on and concerned with some very fundamental structural sort of issues um, having uh, and somewhat abstract whereas um, um, Mill is writing in 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 a, in a sort of situation of somewhat normalcy right mm -hmm. and 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 so he's writing a, a much more nuanced um, uh, uh, way in a more nuanced way that's sort of trying to deal with the actual complexities of lived society um, and how, so how does it how does that what's the effect of that so so he's writing in a different context in a very different under a very different set of motivations how does it change how, how does that either develop or change the bare bones structure that you get out of Locke what does Mill do that's either different or that's a development of the Lockean ideas sure well first I just want to say briefly we don't want to exaggerate normalcy in the case of Mill because he's almost there isn't particularly his father and Jeremy Bentham had achieved a lot of an ambitious reform agenda. So it's almost like he's writing like after the New Deal or something like that. That's actually okay. I like that. That's good. Yeah, yeah. But even you know the New Deal, there was constant stable uh, transition of power and basic constitutional government. So it's not like a not like the Civil War. Right. Right. But it's still a time of great change. <clears throat> but to answer your question more directly, um, he's able to look past what sort of basic forms of government we need and to say, <clears throat> what should educated citizens do to, uh, I mean, partly to be able to put those institutions to use, but assuming they have those institutions, what sort of culture should we develop in order to achieve the kind of society that we want? And does he basically agree with Locke that ultimately the aim of that society is to facilitate the individual's pursuit of his or her own good? Yes. Okay. Very much so. Okay. I think we'll have occasion to talk about that as we as we go forward. Yeah. 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 So so Locke's Locke's saying okay. He, he, He's laying out the basic structure of what a liberal society would look like and where all the elements come from. Mill's already got it. Yeah. And now he's asking, okay, um, what sort of civil society do we have to have and how do and how does it how do we support the all the all the aims of society which he agrees with Locke are ultimately to Make it possible for the individual to fully, uh, fully uh, 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 pursue his or her own good. Um, 
does Mill have a different view of the individual than Locke? In our yes. private conversations, you think you you've told me you think Mill is more fleshed out, and Locke is a very skeletal. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Well, should we go through the four points? If you if you like to do it that way, that's fine. If you want to do it in, out of order, I don't care. I'm, I'm okay. I'm good either way. Okay. Well, I may as well. Um, it's kind of interesting. I'd be hard pressed to put them in any order because they're all kind of fundamental, and in many ways, they all kind of presuppose maybe or touch upon each other. Yeah. So it's hard to tell sort of what's axiom and what's corollary, or even if that's the way to think about it. But, um, okay, so the individual self is fully realized and identifiable separately from anyone else. So these are your words. Can you yeah. give us um, realized and identifiable? So, so the idea is sort of like, I took this, this is straight out of Locke's theory of personal identity that he gives in the essay concerning human understanding, where Locke says that, the, that, that what a person is, is an individual consciousness, and that what it is to remain the same person over time is to have a certain continuity of that consciousness, the chief evidence for which is memory, that you can remember your previous conscious states, right? Um, and Locke doesn't say anything about that consciousness as relying upon or being depending upon external relations. That is, you, you, the, that consciousness is not by Locke defined in terms of its relationships to family, to religion, to country, to anything else in the way that perhaps a pre-modern thinker might very well have done, right? A Spartan, let's say, right? Would have hardly defined a person solely in terms of the individual consciousness of the person, right? Yeah. Um, and so, now this may just be an oversimplification on Locke's part. It may be that he just simply neglected sort of crucial elements of psychology. But I'm at least going to take him as his word. And certainly the tradition has taken it um, as being the case that the, individ that the individual person is entirely discreet and self-sufficient, right? Um, um, and the part of the reason I say this is because Later communitarian criticisms, this is precisely one of the elements that they criticize, right? So, and so I think it's a fair characterization of the tradition. Yeah. So that's what I mean by fully realized and identifiable. Okay, so I got... So realized means some things like you can become a person, become an agent. Yes. Uh, and have thought and some kind of rationality independently of other right. people. And by identifiable, I simply mean the person that you are is solely determined by that internal consciousness and its history, right? Yes. Yes, that's good. So there's... You, oh. Now, Mill doesn't... You don't think Mill agree, would agree... That's too bare bones for Mill, right? Yeah. It's also... You said Spartan. I don't want to get too much on the table, but I'm tempted to think of Aristotle. Yeah. Yeah. He that, deny that. So he... Especially the identifiable part, because he compared us to something like chess pieces. And if you want to understand what a knight is, you have to make reference to the other pieces, often, right? And to the, the the grid of the right or yeah. and to other things. I don't think any pre modern look. I think liberalism is a is a is a is a modern philosophy. I don't think any pre modern thinker would agree with with any of these points. Um, um, yes. Um, I think that this is a distinctively modern way of thinking, yes. 
Yes. And I've actually argued that in, in print. I mean, I, I've I've actually even made the stronger argument in published work that um, there literally was no such thing as the individual as we mean it in the pre-modern world. Yeah. So. Right. Great. So, um, does Mill have any pushback on that? I thought that's where you thought he had the most pushback, yes. right? Well, let me let me focus on the identifier because um, this is interesting because I don't know if he pushes back on quite the point that we can become agents independently of us, in, uh, independently of other people, but he does have. Um, some sense that at least in order to flourish or to achieve our good, we need to be involved um, with other people and we need the support not only of other people, but support of other people in a certain kind of culture which will allow us to cultivate. Um, okay, that's really interesting. Certain qualities of mind. That's really interesting. I mean, partly because it shows, I mean, Locke thinks we need other people too. That's why we make the social contract. Mm -hmm. But he, but the way in which we need them is so much smaller than what you just said. It's sort of, for Locke, because remember, Locke's state of nature is not Hobbes's, right? It's not a state of permanent war. Well, Actually, wait, Locke, wait. I'm Are sorry. Are we putting the cart before the horse? We haven't talked about the state of nature. No, 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 we haven't. That's that's right. I just, I just, it just, it's just so. Um, um, it stands out to me that. How about this? Locke's notion of why we need other people is very minimal compared to compared to Mill's. Right? Mill thinks we really need other people in quite a substantial way. Right. Whereas Locke thinks we sort of barely need other people. Right. <laughs> let's let's. How about we do number three, and that'll get us into the state of nature. Sure. The, the individual is the sole locus of natural authority? Right. Sure. The individual is the sole locus of natural authority. So natural authority is going to be the, the uh, important modifier. And I take it when you mean authority, and I think as you've been authority, using authority um, throughout the conversation even already, is you mean legitimate authority. The legitimate exercise of power over another person. Um, the mere exercise of power is not authority. So, you know, the, the the current dictator of North Korea has no authority. He has plenty of power, but he has no right to exercise it over other people. He's simply taken that right for himself, right? And although without that, we can't distinguish legitimate from illegitimate governments, right? I mean, we have to have some notion of the legitimate exercise of power as opposed to its illegitimate exercise, right? And, and so that's what's typically meant in political philosophy when we talk about authority, right? <clears throat> and it's not doesn't have to be a government, right? No. Tony, Tony Soprano does not have authority. I wouldn't think um, so because of the way in which he acquires his power and the way in which he uses it, yeah. Or uh, multiple businesses forming a cartel do not have authority. I would think not, yeah. Right. But um, what would it take for them to get authority? Well, right. yeah, the idea is where does authority come from? Because that, that's one of the chief questions in political philosophy: is where does authority, where does political authority come from? 
And we have here that, according to classical liberal, liberalism, the sole locus is the individual. So what does it mean to say the individual is a locus of authority? So, at least what, the way Locke puts this is that every person has a natural meaning, a fundamental, that is a pre-societal right to defend his or, his or her own rights and, and, and prerogatives. And so... I have the natural right to use power to prevent you from harming me or to recompense myself if you have already harmed me, right? Mm -hmm. He thinks that's the most basic fundamental kind of authority there is, right? right? You harm me or you threaten to harm me and I have a natural right to either defend myself, to preempt you, or if you've already harmed me, to take recompense, right? And Locke thinks that that's the only natural authority there is. And all the authority that we have in society, therefore, has to come from that in some way, right? So the, the reason the policeman has authority, if he has it, is because in some way the natural authority of the, all these individual people has been transferred or loaned to or in whatever other way because there's no other place it comes from, right? Right. Right. So, okay, that's, that's all great. Um... So I have a few comments. It's important to Locke that we all have this authority equally. Yes. So we all are equally our own masters. And he asks us to imagine a state of um, no convention, no social contract, no government. No political authority. No political In other words, if, if you look at the second treatise as, a, as an argument for where political authority comes from, mm -hmm. which is, I think, a very defensible account of what the book is fully, mostly about, um, then a natural way to ask, well, where does political authority come from, is to start in a hypothetical scenario in which there is none. Mm -hmm. And then ask yourself, okay, well, from a situation of no political authority, how could one imagine there coming to be political authority? And then as he does that, he sort of works his way through and, 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 and comes to the, the view that, I, that, I've just, that I've just laid out, right? In the absence of political authority, there are still individual people. Um, and lo and behold, given what people are, they have their own natural authority over their own little sphere. Right, right yeah. Their person and their property. And this is called the state of nature. Right. And in this kind, and then... In, in order to investigate what a legitimate authority would be, Locke imagines what a transition from the state of nature into a right. civil government would be. Right, so, so the, the question isn't just where does political authority come from, but right. also why should anyone accept it, right? And... So he first has to show that the absence of political authority is less desirable than the presence of it. Yes. In addition to showing then, well, how is it, where does it come from, right? Um, in this, he's following Thomas Hobbes. Yeah, in that sense, what he's doing is very similar to what Hobbes is doing. They're both called social contractarians for this reason, because the idea is that political authority comes out of a contract made between these pre-political individuals. Um, um, but 
I, I always thought that referring to Hobbes, Locke, and then even Rousseau, all the social contract theorists, was as misleading as it was uh, suggestive, simply because they're so wildly different in so many ways that they almost it's hard. It's like calling Locke and Hume both empiricists. I mean, I guess that's true to a certain extent, but they're more different than they're alike. I mean, right? Well, um, maybe, maybe fortunately, we're not going to be able to finish that one. No, 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 no. I'm just giving an but, analogy. Um, <laughs> but there's, there is truth, a lot of truth in that. Um, okay, and the other thing I wanted to say about the state of nature, as long as we're on the subject, <clears throat> is, um, well, should we talk about why, how Locke's state of nature is different from Thompson's? <coughs> well, he, yes, only for one reason, because it gets at the point about why Locke thinks we only need each other a little bit, right? Which is which is one of the big differences with Mill. You think Mill really thinks we, 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 we are dependent upon one another to fully realize a culture in which we can individually pursue our good. Um, Locke thinks we only barely sort of need each other. And that's because Locke doesn't think the state of nature is that bad, right? See, Hobbes, who's before Locke, thinks that the state of nature is basically a state of perpetual war. That in the absence of political authority, all that anyone will do is try to kill each other and take each other's stuff. Locke doesn't think that. Locke thinks that most people are pretty reasonable. And that in the absence of political authority, most people would behave pretty well. But he says enough people have the potential to behave poorly enough that life in the state of nature is... A, going to be one of sort of perpetual low-grade anxiety. It's going to be very inconvenient. And because advanced civilization requires tremendous cooperation and mutual trust, it's going to be very limited of what sort of society you can develop in the state of nature, what sort of culture. You can never have an advanced economy in the state of nature, right? Mm -hmm. Um... um and so, you know, if you read Locke's the chapter on property that's in the second treatise of government, Locke thinks we ultimately have an, a right to unlimited property so long as it involves no wasting of primary, what we might call primary goods, um, things you need to survive. Um, and only in an advanced economy can you, in a sense, grow, increase the size of the, of, of, of the, natural, of the natural goods, right, because of investment and, and, and technology and all these sorts of things. And so I think that Locke just at the end of the day says, look, it's not a slam dunk, but all other things being equal, life in the state of nature is just not going to be quite as good as life in the civil society, life in, the, life in political society, life in political society holds the potential to, to develop advanced forms of civilization in which everybody's good will be very much more pursuable than in the state of nature, and so we're better off with it. Um, but that just means that we have to make very minimal agreements with each other to sort of basically leave each other alone and obey the police, right? Right. And 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 pay our voluntarily pay our debts and all this sort of thing. Well, a little more than that. Um, <clears throat> around this time, he was apparently uh, a government functionary, sort of regulating commerce um, for Shaftesbury. So that's you know <clears throat> when he talks about how goods and what would they call it in those days? Industry? Is, is industry 17th century? Um, you know, that would require a certain amount of what we'd now call government oversight. He's, yeah. He's probably pulling on that kind of experience. Certainly regula a certain regulatory regime. 
Yeah. Um, but what I mean by that is, what I mean is, we only need other people for Locke, at least what Locke says, in pu for purely formal reasons, like sort of, in terms of sort of to structure our formal arrangements. You don't get the sense from him this need for this sort of substantial cultural connection between people that it seems to me that you think Mill is arguing pretty strongly for and on liberty. So at any point, if you want to transition over to that, you can. Um, I think we get most of, of Mill when we get to four. And I think we've kind of already done two. Also, not with respect to one, not with respect to the literal... Uh, the individual is fully realized and identifiable separately from anyone else. Well, I think four is the one that's going... That was number one that I did. Yeah. Number four is going to be... Um, the most important, and then I think it will have implications for the other three. Okay. So number two is, so we just finished with number three, the individual is the sole locus of natural authority. Um, or did we, should we say that, did we, did we really talk about what it is for the individual to transfer their authority to the government? No, that's just, it's just what Locke says the social contract consists of Yeah. is... Once we've sort of ra rationally recognized that we're better off with political authority than in the state of nature, um, what the social contract consists of, what causes political society to actually come into existence, is when individuals give up their natural right to police the, the, law, the law and transfer their natural authority to do so to a third party, um, right. who now... And, and agree all <coughs> to obey the third party. Yeah. Um, it's interesting, actually, in my view, this is categorically inconsistent with people running around a, uh, in, a country, in, a, in a society like ours uh, with weapons, right? Yeah. Um, and I've actually written articles where I say I don't see how carrying weapons around is consistent with the social contract in its most fundamental, basic Assumption. I mean, it's precisely the giving up of the right to do that yes. that creates political society in the first place, right? Um, um, and the idea that both the political authority has both 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 the the state has political authority and the individual retains it completely makes no sense if you actually understand the way the contractarian logic works. Um, um, but that, you know, that's not something we have to argue. It's just something I thought would be, might be interesting to in the yeah. audience as an aside, and I'm sure might 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 cause a, a minor eruption in the uh, discussion. Um, yeah, and but, yeah, go ahead. The power over violence is sort of the most basic power that the state can have. That's right. So, Max Weber, who is an old commie, said that the definition of the state is the state is the entity that takes all legitimate violence unto itself. That's right. That's right. So the army and the police are all are the people who do the violence. And if you have violence that needs to be done, you have to call them. That's right. <clears throat> the only time you can do it yourself is if you can't access them. And then, you know, in America we talk about citizens' arrest, where you officially become an agent of the state. Yeah in order to do the violence that you need to do yeah. in order to protect yourself. And you can only, in that, and under that, those uh, auspices do certain kinds of violence or um, restrict other people's That's liberty right. 
in certain ways. And if you go beyond that, then it's illegitimate and irresponsible. Look, I, I think, I mean, this is, this is a little off our topic, but I mean, I do think it's worth saying. I mean, I think that a fundamental mistake people make is that they think that somehow the social contract was supposed to be some sort of guarantee, right, mm -hmm. of everyone's universal safety, and, 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 and it's not. It's simply right. supposed to be better than the state right. of nature. Yeah. And so, look, you know, when people say to me, well, you know, what if the police don't come on time? Well, i got to have a, you know, I better be packing heat. But my answer is, I'm afraid you're going to have to take that risk. Yeah. Just, just, just console yourself. Yeah. That's a hell of a lot better than having no government and having me running around with a weapon too, right? Yeah. In, in other words, yeah, you're still taking a risk in, civil, in, in a political society. It's just much less of one, right? And, and it's another, no argument against that to say, well, there should be no risk at all. Right. That's that's not a that that's that's not a reasonable position to take because there's no such situation right where there's no risk at all. And another reaction would be um, fix the police. The police are using illegitimate authority. Right. Proper reaction is right. not let's have police or they're not coming fast enough or whatever. Right. Um, um, go to the state government or go to the chief of right. police and pass <coughs> legislation, assign more <coughs> revenues, restructure. I mean. But not everybody arm up and go walking around like we're in the middle of the fucking OK Corral, right? I mean, I mean, that that's not civil society as according to according to our own tradition, in my view. Um, um, that's completely alien uh, to the to the tradition that our 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 system of government actually comes from. Um, but let's let's not go down that. I, I, that's an argument we'll probably wind up having in the discussion because there's a number of people on blogging heads who won't like that at all. Um, We'd like to irritate them, so that's fine. Um, okay, so back to where we were. Um, yeah. Yeah. The key point I want to make, the individual is the sole locus of natural authority. Any artificial authority or any art authority which is created by contract or civil agreement is legitimate, has authority, insofar as it um, furthers the interests of the individual. That's right. That's right. That's the because key. the individual would not rashly transfer their authority. Right. If they weren't going to wind up being better off afterwards, remember, I mean, the, the whole justification here rests on the individual rashly deciding it's in their self-interest to do this, right? Otherwise, you stay in the state of nature. Exactly. Yeah. So that's that's the key point. And when government <clears throat> ceases to um, to further the uh, interests of the individual, it ceases to be legitimate. That's right. Generally, they're they're. Problems here. What if we unknowingly authorize the state to do things that are in our not in our best interest? That gets into some murkiness. But in general, yeah. But remember, this is, these are social and political theories. They're not meant to be airtight like that. I mean, they do involve the exercise of some judgment. And what I would say is, and I tell my students this when I teach this, um, look. A social contract based politics is in a sense very fragile. Yeah. It only can be sustained so long as people overwhelmingly believe it to be in their self-interest because it rests on no other basis. It doesn't rest on divine right. It doesn't rest on the authority of tradition. It does not rest on anything other than people's mutual self-interest, right? And that's why I say it's very dangerous in a system like ours to allow there to be tremendous disparities of wealth, to be just tremendous disparities of how people are treated in the legal system. Because if you have large numbers of people 
no longer believing that it's in their that this is in their self-interest. There's no other rationale for it. And it seems to me that we are, in a sense, constantly flirting with or, or courting or tempting revolution. I'm actually surprised we don't have more uprisings than we have, um, given just how bad the conditions are in certain parts of the country and just given how unequally people get treated in the courts. Um, um, I'm surprised, actually, that we haven't had more L.A. riot-style stuff, honestly, um, uh, especially now, given it's so disparate now <laughs> that... Um, okay. When we get to the next one of these, people are going to be shocked to know that I'm supposed to be the liberal in this conversation. <laughs> are, we, we, are we both liberals? <laughs> yeah, well, I'm supposed to be to the left of you, but you're, you? you're feeling my thunder. I'm sorry. Well, <laughs> don't be sorry. <laughs> so, soul locus, uh, the individual is the sole locus of natural authority, and yes, in there, what you were saying, um, I felt moved to make the point that, again, Locke is writing this in um, a moment of social crisis where we don't need to get too much into particulars, but the parliament and the king are really vying for who has the most legitimate power. And recent scholarship has really suggested that the second <clears throat> the um, the second uh, treatise was written as a defensive parliament over against the king right as right. the fundamental legitimate authority in the British world oh and in you were talking about the exercise of judgment in political theorizing <clears throat> Thomas Hobbes was somebody who really modeled his political thinking on geometry um, like uh, Leibniz before him, he thought that those things could be done <clears throat> very a priori and very precisely and kind of apart from data. Hobbes was an Oxford, excuse me, Locke was an Oxford man. And he's particularly interested in there in a man called Hooker, yeah. who was doing experiments in what we now think of as botany. And you know, the experimental method had been sort of simmering and developing at Oxford for a long time since yeah. the Middle Ages. And he has made some comments about political philosophy where he says it's, you know, you need to make analogies and exercise good judgment, and it's not a matter of sort of clean a priori principles right. in the way Hobbes would have thought. So that, that's worth remarking, too. But plowing along. Unless, uh, did you have something? No, no, that's fine. Okay, the individual is the fundamental unit of social reality. We kind of covered that, but basically, I take this to mean the only social realities are organizations of individuals between individuals. <clears throat> Again, the individual is prior to the group in a way that that's not true in the pre-modern world, right? Right. Um, um, in the pre-modern world, the the group is in a sense prior to the individual, insofar as the group defines the individual, right? And um, Aristotle's analogy—it's a game called draughts or something—but it's like chess, right? You can't understand what any piece is. Nothing is a pawn without the surrounding pieces. If you take a pawn and just throw it away. 
and it's in a desert island somewhere all by itself, it's not really a pawn anymore. It's just a piece of wood that's, that's right. Sort that's of right. Shape. Yeah. <coughs> and he famously, Aristotle famously says, if a, a stone hand of a statue is not really a hand, and an individual that's totally separated from an individual from a from a larger society is not really a man any more than the stone statue. Right. Right. That the relational characteristics define the individual characteristic. Yeah. It's funny as you're talking about sculptures and stuff. I was I was thinking uh, I did a dialogue a while ago with Massimo about our favorite philosophers, and, and the one I chose at the time was Arthur Danto, right. and Danto famously argues something to this effect that you know prior to interpretation, um, a bunch of marks on a on a, on a sheet or a, a piece of marble, a broken piece of marble isn't a hand or a foot or a head or anything else, so that it only becomes one in the context, in a frame of reference in which it's interpreted as one, right? Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so in that sense, I mean, I think, I think that's a very nice way to characterize it. I mean, um, in the pre-modern way of thinking, the individual is a function of the whole, right? Um, and so the whole is prior to the individual. Whereas in Locke's way of thinking, uh, the modern way of thinking, the individual is prior to the whole is simply a collection of the individuals. It has no independent existence, and it depends for its qualities on the on the qualities of the individuals rather than the other way around. Um, at least formally speaking, that's how I I would argue Locke uh, 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 understands it. Now, is I but I take it you think that Mill does not, right? Yeah. Well, let's. It, the last one. Yeah. Last of these four bullets is the one that's really going to help, I think, and get into mill. <clears throat> the chief aim of society is to facilitate the individual's pursuit of his or her own good. <clears throat> and here's the thing, and this is the point that it's going to reverberate through all of the points we just made, is his or her own good. Own good. So each his or her has a good. Yes. And it is their own and it is theirs without reference to their society. Something yeah, or, or to their species, right? So, so, for example, Aristotle thinks there's a general human good, right? A collective, you know, a human good that's true for everyone, right? And, well, he, eudaimonia, flourishing, right? I mean, I mean, there are more than one ways to do it, right? Right. But okay. there is such a thing as human flourishing, right? Mm -hmm. um, in Locke's view... There's only individual goods, right? I mean, I mean, those are the only goods there are, um, and so and that doesn't mean that no one else can be involved in your individual good. But right. there may be as many individual goods as there are individuals, right? right. Someone like Aristotle doesn't think that at all, um, right. um, and so, so yes, I mean, I think that's a hallmark of modern thinking. Um, not just that the state's job is to facilitate the individual pursuit of the good, but that. Goods are individual, right? That 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 that, pe that people have their own goods, and that those are the only goods there are. That's that's great. And when we were talking before about people, individuals being identifiable separately from anybody else. Yes. That has more to do with their goods, than, and then might at first be obvious, because <clears throat> Aristotle, again would say we're not identifiable separately from anybody else, exactly because our goods are not identifiable separately from anybody else. That's right. You know, our 
our good consists in doing something cooperative with other people. And without that, we are sort of identified as an individual in, as you said, individual as a function of society. Our function is what identifies us. Yes, that's right. And our function is our good. Yep. So what you, you know, in explaining what is this, what is a human being? Well, it's something that sort of, um, it's a social animal, it, you know, it likes music, it likes art, um, it likes to work and create things. And Aristotle thinks, in, a, in order to understand any individual, you're going to have to make so much reference to other people, but it's not really separately um, identifiable. So that identifiability and having having a discrete, um, unique good are more intertwined. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this, and um, again, the same for fundamental unit. Um, I'm going to skip sole locus of authority because that would get us into too much. But the chief aim of society, we're still looking at number four, the chief aim of society is to fil facilitate the individual's pursuit of his or her own good. Now this is where we get a lot of pushback from Mill. Pursuit of his or her own good. So <coughs> thinking back to Locke. What do I want from civil society? Why do I step out of the state of nature and into, into civil society? I want not to be robbed. I want to be able to punish people, even if they're more power, powerful than me. So I want to create a still more powerful government that would be able to punish anybody. Uh, I want a little regulation on trade. I want coinage. I want my money to be, I want everybody to understand how much this gold pound is worth. Right. Um, I want, I don't want other, somebody else's sheep eating on my commons, eating the grass. On I want to be able to give somebody a piece of plastic and have them give me $10,000 worth of goods because they know that if I don't pay, there is a third party who will make me pay. Right. And without that, there's no, there's no advanced economy. You can't do it. You, you're going to be a bunch. You'll be a bunch of barterers, medieval barterers, for the rest of our eternity, for the for the eternity of our <coughs> lives, right? I mean, for Locke, it's sort of very bare bones, right? I mean, I mean, you need public authority, pu political authority, in order to be able to live. To 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 live in an advanced enough society to fully be able to pursue one's own good, right? But the the good you could pursue otherwise is limited, very limited, right? But knowing there are police on the beat, knowing that my credit card is not going to be declined, <clears throat> knowing that um, you know there's that my my dollar is worth a dollar, whichever and, store I go into, whichever yeah. store I yeah. go, whichever state I go into, uh, I'm pretty much good on my own. Yep, I think, Locke, that, I think Locke thinks that. Yes, I can decide what do I want to read. Do I want to eat? Do I want to? Um, do I want to go into politics? Do I want to go into science? Do I want to? Um, do I want to work with my hands? Do I want to be an artist? That's up to me, and I don't really need anybody else. And that's where Mill thinks this is wrong. 
um, in order to be able to pursue our own good, we need uh, a certain culture which will support us and um, give us what we, the sort of um, atmosphere necessary for the kind of creativity that will create, that will give rise to vibrant individual lives. These, um, <clears throat> so is this a bit, is this the part about life experiments? Yes. So In other words, that. we need we need as many people as possible to be engaging in various experiments of life because only then will we discover what the best ones are. That if we're too yeah. isolated and pursuing only and not connected to each other, then, then then the chance of any one of us coming upon by himself the best way to live is very slim. Is that is that? He refers to this as experiments in living, and he wants people be sort of radically different and he sort of thinks without individuality um, we, we will sort of become torpid and ossified. It's great because Mill is the great democratic reformer <coughs> and the, um, the great proto-feminist. Yep. Um, and it's great. He gives you, and he was involved in all kinds of civil reform, but he gives you these real reminders and on liberty that he's still very much Victorian. <clears throat> One of the things he worries is that our society, and he meant our British society, but you know, we're not far off from that. So he's, he's worried that our society is going to fall into the kind of. Um, stasis that you see in all oriental societies. He'd spent time in China. Right. Recently, in, you know, in oriental societies, you see custom has become king. And all the individuals are, um, are become, uh, what they do is dictated by custom and tradition and community. <clears throat> and he has a kind of instinctive horror of this kind of idea, of this kind of society, um, which it doesn't need a lot of motivation for him. But, uh, but let me ask you, let me just ask you something about Mill, and, and how deep a liberal he is, in the sense that I was always under the impression that his liberalism is ultimately justified by his utilitarianism. In other words, look, Locke is a principled liberal, right? In the sense that he's a liberal because he what he thinks the basic fundamental condition of the human being is, right? Yeah. Natural right, natural law, all that sort of thing. Mill's a liberal because he thinks that the more people are left to individually radically experiment, left to their own devices, the better chance we're going to find the best ways to live. But if that wasn't the case, if the facts about human nature were different, such that tradition would be the best way to find out how to live, he'd be, he wouldn't be a liberal, he'd be a conservative, right? In right. other words, is there any principled commitment to liberalism in Mill, or is his liberalism really a function of his utilitarianism? He just thinks it's the best way, right, to, to, to identify the best ways to live, is to let everybody do their own thing. <coughs> I wouldn't call a utilitarian commitment to liberalism unprincipled. 
<clears throat> well, maybe, what I mean is the, the liberalism that is contingent. It's contingent upon what the utility, which direction utility points, right? It's not essential for Locke. It's essential, right? It, it's it's a, his liberalism is let's put it let's call it metaphysical, right? Uh, Mills is not, right? Yeah. So John Gray makes a great deal of this point where he thinks Mills. Um, commitment to liberalism is con contingent to certain facts about human nature, <clears throat> uh, which is sort of the facts that we've been uh, uh, chewing over, which is, you know, <clears throat> they tend to want to pursue these own goods and tend to, it's good for them to become vibrant individuals and um, to... Because of the way we are, but if we were a different way... That wouldn't be valuable at all. In other words, I just I, I, I feel like we should say this: there is actually tension in the in the Mill scholarship as to whether utilitarian his book Utilitarianism and on Liberty are consistent with one another, or whether they're in a sense actually at odds with one another. On first glance, it looks like they're at odds with one another because in On Liberty he's arguing for various values of individual liberty. And you always have the question back in your mind of, you know, what, but what about the principle of utility? What if it turned out that everybody was better off in Brave New World, right? Mm -hmm. um, and the answer that I've always found persuasive is, no, 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 it's they're consistent because the commitment to individual liberty is contingent upon its being conducive of utility, right? Yes. And now, do you agree with that or do you take the view that they're more at odds? I'm, at this point in time, inclined to agree. Um, I still have more research to do, but yes, I'm inclined to agree. Um, I'm not sure that that's really a weakness of the argument. Oh, I don't know if that's a weakness at all. I just want to point out differences from Locke. In other words, you're saying, look, um, he has this much more fleshed out conception of the ways in which we need each other. We need each other because we need to all experiment in ways of living so that we're more likely or most likely to discover the best ways to live, which benefits all of us, right? Um, and all that I wanted to point out was I agree with that, but I think that that shows the extent to which Mill is less pure of a liberal than Locke is and less fundamental of a liberal than Locke is. For Mill, liberalism is justified because it's the best way to achieve the best outcome. For Locke, liberalism is simply the metaphysical fact, reflects the metaphysical fact about what a person is, right? Um, and about well, a situation in the world. Well, let's let's look at Locke for a second, because um, he said medical, metaphysical fact, and it's not clear to me that being contingent on metaphysical fact is less a contingency than being contingent on certain facts about human nature. You wouldn't say that Locke's essentially a liberal and Mill is only contingently a liberal. You think that that's misleading? Probably, I, I would need to think about that. Okay. But, yeah, I lean to thinking that. For Locke, it's maybe contingent, or try this on for size, anyway. For Locke, it's contingent, at least, on our being rational. So maybe... Rational and self-interested, I would say. Rational on, and self-interested. Yeah, yeah. Maybe, maybe rational and self-interested tend to be interdefined, if you... Yeah. So, yeah. for, uh, in fact... Given the economist definition of rationality, yeah, exactly. right, 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 stable right, preferences, right, 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 right. Yeah. Um, 
You're just you're saying that that both their liberalisms are contingent. They're just conditioned on different things. For Locke, it's contingent on a certain picture of the of, of human nature, uh, and for and for Mill, it's based on a certain um, a, a certain I guess empirical judgment upon um, what are the conditions in which in which people are most likely to discover the best ways to live, right? But they're yeah. contingent in both cases upon something, right? Yeah, and actually to substantiate your point about Mill is he did say that liber he did say liberalism isn't necessarily the best government in any situation. And, uh, and on liberty he said, if you know people aren't ready for liberalism, for, for God's sake, you know, let them have a Charlemagne. I think it's Charlemagne he mentions. You know, let a Charlemagne rule over them. You know, don't let uh, don't let them try to take on a liberal kind of government that they cannot wield or they cannot uh, administer effectively. So <laughs> maybe we could have used Mill before we went to Iraq, but <laughs> well, that. But, but, let me ask you though, that that's. I mean, I've often heard that sort of formulation with respect to democracy, right? And so, sort of like, look, democracy is great, but if you don't have liberal institutions and liberal values already in place, democracy is just as likely to become a mobocracy and get you the Ayatollah Khomeini as it is going to get you, or Hamas as it is going to get you um, Westminster, right? Um, and so, and so. I was always on the. I was always on the impression too much on the Middle East, by the way, because there. I, I should have come up with something else. I'm sorry, um, but so I was always on the impression that, in a sense, liberalism is more important than democracy. Yeah, you can have a non-democratic society that, if it has liberal institutions and body, embraces liberal values, would be a pretty damn good place to live, anyway, right? Whereas a democracy without any liberal institutions can be absolutely appalling, right? Terrible uh, situation. But this, now you're saying that something a little different, you're saying, well, you know, even liberalism itself, you know, I, I thought that the point about Charlemagne was, you know, it's okay that there isn't a democracy because Charlemagne was still an enlightened, an enlightened guy, but you're saying even liberalism is something we have to be ready for, right? I mean, that we can't... I took that to be the meaning. Yeah, okay. That's an interesting... If I liberalism mean... is the condition for a good democracy, what are the conditions for a good liberalism, right? I mean, what has to happen first... Yeah, I may have to go back to that passage with that in mind, but um, but at, at, at any rate, I just wanted to make the basic point that only you know certain kinds of government and certain kinds of right. the civil society are only are always contingent upon um, people being able to enact them. Right, and liberalism's value is contingent upon various things like what people are actually like. What's most likely to produce the best results, yeah. and so on and so forth. And so you don't see a fundamental difference between Locke and Mill in that way, that they both think liberalism is contingent. They just, they just have different focuses on what they think it's contingent on. Okay, so go on. Um, um, with respect we to, about, yeah. We were talking about his and her own good. Yeah, just and talking experiments about, and living, yeah. Yeah, yeah Mill wants, doesn't want something like this oriental society and he sees too much of that in his own, um, his own British society. And it, I, I wrote in previous pieces for the Agora about how contemporary his, um, 
uh, his account of conformity and of censorship and his own nature. He talks about everywhere everybody feels an evil eye is upon them. Right. So he's worried, and I like this very much about your work, and I also like that you've done for us, and also I think it's a really important point. I mean, everybody focuses on the infringements on liberty by the state. Right. But you can have a state that imposes no infringements on liberty at all, and yet have a completely suffocating civil society. Absolutely. In which social disapproval and social sanction muzzle speech just as much as laws would, right? Right. Um, I can show you multiple kind of arguments in the PC debate where people said censorship is when the government comes and takes you away. Censorship is when you get sent to the Google. I've said stuff like that myself. I've said you have a right to stand on a street corner and yell your head off. You don't have a right to come onto my website and say whatever the hell you want, right? Um, um, I, I mean, I've justified my own silencing of people <coughs> on the basis of that sort of a distinction. Um, oh, well, but I think it's fair to say, I mean, you have to be very careful. You're not saying that Mill thinks there's never a legitimate exercise of social censorship, but that we're way too, we're way too cavalier about it, right? I mean, yes. Mill, Mill sees, Mill, um does approve of social censorship in cases of impolite or impolitic style. And that's about the only thing that he explicitly endorses. And he seems to say that almost any position, no matter matter how outrageous, should be, um, nothing should be censored on its content, um, which I've said, I wrote, the Agora, I don't find that quite persuasive. But yes, the main point is we use it with abandon. But I, to your point about censorship, Mill thinks that there is something which is not merely speech, but which is a kind of what I've called social censorship. Where instead of using your speech to um, rebut or refute or attempt to persuade someone, you use your speech to um, try to impose a cost. For their talking at all, yeah. Their talking at all. Yeah, yeah. And there are various ways to do this. You can just attack somebody's reputation. Um, you can decry them in the sort of morally visceral terms that you know they will find distressing. Or what a lot of people do is, especially comedians have talked about this, certain people who um, dislike this or dislike um, what someone is saying will try to go after people's sponsors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the most common tactic now is, I guess, to try to scare the the the, uh, the the advertisers or whoever it is so that they'll they'll pull their funding right um, and so that's not trying to um, persuade someone that's trying to make it so if you say something you might lose money you might lose your job you, or 
it could just be you lose your reputation or will be put through some sort of ordeal. Right, right. So the difference, the distinction is between trying to refute someone mm -hmm. and trying to make them stop speaking. Right. Right. And I guess they could have the same result. In other words, the refuting of someone could cause them to stop speaking. Mm -hmm. But if you think about this in the context, the larger context of justifying this ultimately by appeal to utility, um, the, the ends of speaking have been fulfilled there, right? I mean, the, the purpose of, of, of allowing freedom of speech is so that we can find out the best ideas and the best ways to live. And if I refute somebody... Yes, they've stopped, they may stop speaking as a result, but it served the function of speaking, and that is people now know this is not a good idea, right? Um, because it's been, refu it's been refuted, right? right yeah. If I simply silence them, right, right. we never get to find that out, right? We never right. find out if it's false, right? We never find out if it's... In Mill's terms, we miss the chance to exchange truth for error. Um, and also... He generally seems, he thinks that in the sort of society where things get, so I have this opinion that's sort of burning within me, and I want to express it, and you say, no, you can't. There's going to be, you know, I'm going to really make sure everyone knows you're a bad guy. You're going to get colder looks from your fellows if you, if you try to say that stuff around these parts. And remember, these are the Victorians. Yeah. This is like, if you've ever read Edith Wharton and um, Henry James, you know how, how uh, and these are, those were just the Americans, but you know how good they are at um, freezing people out. Yeah. You know, yeah. just making it so you feel like an outsider if you're different in certain ways. And if you do that, then he thinks that there's going to, or Mill thinks there's something really deadening about we lose the vitality right. of human right. life if that's the way we react to those things. Because, because I mean, it's, it's sort of important. I'm saying, it's not just that we need to see what the good way ideas are and what the good ways of living are. We need to also find out what the bad ones are, right? That's and true. if we don't allow any of the bad ones to go on, right, we're never going to discover that they're bad ones, right? It's more than that, too, though. I think this, right at the beginning of... Um, <clears throat> On liberty, he says, there are two reasons to have this sort of society of liberty and the free debate. <clears throat> One is that this um, this censorious society, the alternative to liberty, produces only pinched and hidebound natures. And he says, that's really good enough for me. I think that's the most important one. But then he says... I know that's not going to persuade anyone, so let me give you another argument, which is most of all liberty. So, and that argument is the one you've been sort of saying. We need to sift out the good ideas and the bad and he ideas. He thought it was enough to say, just, you get horrible people this way, right? Yeah. <laughs> you get a society of dullers that yeah. doesn't yeah. have the kind of vibrancy. Yeah. You get yeah. only pinched and hidebound natures. Yeah, yeah. Phrase yeah. worth remembering. Um, or... There's the, the phrase that uh, Glenn Lowry and Joshua Cohen brought up, which was, for we, the freedom of speech uh, brings forth the sort of basic well-being upon which our whole mental well-being uh, stands. I'm getting the quote very loose, but 
you, you get the point. <laughs> Without this kind of free exchange of ideas, there's no other kind of well-being. Again, we sort of go, become ossified. We lose, we lose that vitality and vibrancy. Right, right. And so this is, I mean, I don't want to anticipate too much because we're going to have a second dialogue that's on, that's going to include a lot about the contemporary situation. But, I mean, this is why... The the, the, the the freedom of speech construed as, you know, in broad as possible, which includes things like academic freedom and stuff like that, has to always be the dominant value, even when someone is claiming mm -hmm. to having been harmed or to having been, you know, it's also part of the reason why monkeying around with what we mean by harm is so, is so pernicious, right? Mm -hmm. um, because... You know, Mill is going to allow for certain certain things to be suppressed if they demonstrably cause harm, but his conception of harm is real harm, and right. not just I got upset or you know I'm going to pretend I have a mental illness. Well, real and, harm is stacking the deck. You know, but you know what I mean. I mean, harm as 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 used to be commonly understood it's prior what, to the last five years or so, right? I mean, what what picks our pocket and what breaks our leg? <laughs> that's right. That's right. Physical, tangible, quantifiable harm. Right. Um, um, and so, and so, it's not so much that freedom of speech is a ultimate value, but it's a very fundamental one. I mean, and it's one that it's of incredible instrumental yeah, value. It's going to be barely ever trumped, right? I mean, it's going to be rarely going to be rarely trumped. Precisely because without it, none of the rest happens, right? I mean, I mean, I mean, I mean, and, and, and if you think about a university, the entire function of the university cannot occur if there is allowed to be a kind of social, um, um, uh, a social uh, uh, sort of crackdown on people's speech, right? I mean, I mean... To the point to which people are afraid to talk in the classroom, people are afraid to teach, people are afraid to ask mm -hmm. questions. People, well, then nothing happens that, that that is supposed to happen in the university. So I I think I think it's 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 a little tricky to say you know what kind of a value it is. I mean it's it's a fundamental value. It's not ultimately fundamental. I mean there still are, you know, quote you know, yelling fire in theater sort of things, right? Um, um, but um, but it's well, pretty damn fundamental. Yelling fire in a theater could be harmful. Right. So, well, well we don't want to get into the harm yeah, principle. Yeah, yeah. The point is, we need this culture in order to have a society of vibrant individuals and um, and of um, well, how to describe it? I suppose like Mill. Um, I, I value that so strongly. It's hard to even find some fun, more fundamental. Right, but ultimately, the argument for it is utilitarian, right? I mean, the reason why it's valuable to have a society full of vibrant individuals is because that's the way we're most likely going to discover the best ways to live, right? Well, no, not just that. I think he sees it as good in itself. So, in the, that sense, you do think it's at odds with his utilitarianism, his liberalism. Not, not necessarily, because then it could be in, in um, 
agreeing with his utilitarianism contingent on facts about our human nature. Right, because in utilitarianism he says that happiness is the only intrinsic intrinsic good. Yes. And so now it can't be that liberty is the is an intrinsic good unless you say liberty is constitutive of happiness. Right. No, not constitutive of, but essential to for human beings. But that's only contingent. Human beings might have that's been otherwise. Fine. Human that's beings fine. might have been otherwise, right? That, that's fine. Contingency is fine. Um, but, but then it's not an intrinsic good, liberty. Not an intrinsic good? No. Right. So that's why. That's why. So when you said, "Hey, you know, we want to have a society of, flur- of thriving," I forgot the word. What was it? Um, um, energetic sort of individuals um, okay yeah. why is no. it why is it valuable to have that you said well I just take that to be intrinsically valuable no not not, not intrinsic uh, I mean intrin- it everything's intrinsic relative to some accepted background conditions I suppose but it, it's it's good it's not merely good as an instrument to discovering the best ways of living <clears throat> over and above that it contributes to the quality of our lives. That is a better society for human beings to live in. I'm, I'm not just disagreeing with what I'm trying to what I'm trying to figure out is whether for Mill whether one could imagine a case in which Mill would agree that liberty is no longer a value, in other words is no longer important. In other words, suppose that something like the Brave New World were possible. Yeah, and we could actually demonstrably show that the way to maximize everybody's happiness would be in the absence of liberty. Would Mill still insist upon liberty? See, I always took that book as an argument against utilitarianism, right? Um, to show that utilitarianism is inadequate to understand fundamental questions of value, because all that one has to imagine is a world like this in which utility is maximized, but which we would instinctively say is horrible, right? And I want, I'm trying to press you a little bit to say, you know, how much of a liberal is Mill really, right? Yeah. Um, or is he fundamentally a liberal because it is, it is his, his, his notion of utility is at least as far as we know with regard to human beings contingent upon having a liberal... Well, I, I think that's the right question. Is it gets into? I don't know how much we want to do with this, but no, we probably don't. I just it just yeah occurred to it's, me. It 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 depends on what Mill means by utility. Does he mean what Bentham meant? No, we know he doesn't mean that, right? He doesn't just mean happiness in a generic sense. He spends a lot of time in utilitarianism talking about happiness as being this qualitatively rich. Thing that involves what he calls higher pleasures and not just lower ones and all that sort of business. So no, he does not. Um, he does not think mean it in the Benthamite way. Um, so then, then it gets into if he means something different by utility. In what sense is he really a utilitarian? Right. I think it's, Martha Nussbaum actually argues that he's a eudaimonist like Aristotle, right. which I always found a bit much. But um, I don't know if I find it well. I find it easy to lose interest because. I don't care about who's really a utilitarian. Maybe if I were a utilitarian, I would. But the more the more salient point is how defensible the view actually is. Yeah. Um, and since we're talking about liberalism, yeah, the relevance here is: is Mill's liberalism ultimately in service to his utilitarianism, or is liberal is liberalism for him a distinctive value? 
Or is it all part of this picture of ultimately the best ideas leading to the best lives for people? And however you get there is how you get there. It just so happens that for us, usually you get there from through liberal means. But liberalism is not is somehow inherently valuable in itself. That's where I, th where I thought I saw a difference between him and Locke. That for Locke, liberal, the liberalism is this constitutive of, of, of what we are. And, and for Mill, it seems at least like it's important because at least as we are now, we need to experiment a lot in order to find out the good ways to live, right? Maybe. But you could see like, you know, future social science doing that instead, right? And then not needing to have all these experiments, right? These individual experiments. No, but again, I don't think, I, I haven't made myself clear on this one point, but there's, there is, a, do you see what I'm talking about when I say there's a value of this vibrant, diverse life over and above just finding out what experiments and living? I see the point, but I would have to hear what the value consists of in order for it to be persuasive, right? In other okay, words, well then, yeah. let me try that. Yeah. I have the, the tender plant quote here. Can I... Yeah. That yes. yeah, 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 yeah. <clears throat> this is, but be clear, this is not from On Liberty. This is from utilitarianism. This is from utilitarianism. Right, okay. But I think it reverberates with what's in, in On Liberty. Sure. And, in, and um, I think I'm going to mention a little bit of his autobiography. <clears throat> this is a quote from, on, from, excuse me, from utilitarianism. Capacity for the nobler feelings is in most natures a very tender plant, easily killed not only by hostile influences, but by mere want of sustenance. And in the majority of young persons, it speedily dies away if the occupations to which their position in life has devoted them and the society into which it has thrown them are not favorable to keeping that higher capacity in exercise. Right. Men lose their high aspirations as they lose their intellectual tastes because they have not time or opportunity for indulging them and they addict themselves to inferior pleasures, not because they deliberately prefer them, but because they are either the only ones to which they have access or the only ones which they are any longer capable of enjoying. Yeah. So the key phrase, nobler, the nobler feelings in most natures is a very tender plant, easily killed. Mill was the tender plant. Um, right. He was prone to depression, and he could be driven to per depression by very abstract musings. Um, <clears throat> and what really, he credits things with getting out of his depression, like Wordsworth, reading Wordsworth, and <clears throat> going to debate societies, and arguing, meeting, sort of having personable, affable meetings, and arguing about Anglicanism, and arguing about Whig policies, and about liberalism. And certainly he went to these societies, and he had public debates with friends about the, the merits of Wordsworth and these various political things. And he thought that certainly part of those debates and these conversations was that they were they helped sort through the public debate and persuaded people of better ideas and made him better by putting his own ideas up against rival ideas. But more than that, he just enjoyed them. And he got a satisfaction out of sort of 
involving himself and other people by means of these contrasting experiments. Sure, the experiments were going <clears> to <throat> yield results and the results were going to be helpful, but just the experimenting itself was incredibly invigorating and valuable. And he thought that everyone should have that, that, that feeling of experimenting, of doing something novel, <clears throat> and that there was uh, an enjoyment in that regardless of the results. So let me ask you something. Are you in a sense, I mean, you, you said, you denied this before, but I'm wondering if you really want to deny it. I mean, it sounds to me like you are saying that Mill thinks that liberty, in the sense that we mean when we talk about liberalism, is constitutive of happiness, if what you mean by happiness are the higher pleasures. Right. Constitutive. Um, constitutive, at least... In other words, that, that's what, that would be a way to argue for their intrinsic value, right? In other words, it's not that they're a means to happiness. They're constitutive of happiness in the sense of, if you what you mean by happiness, is the happiness that consists of a life of the higher pleasures. I, I struggle with constitutive and intrinsic because, again, this is all contingent upon certain facts about human nature, I think. Fine. I mean, look, to yeah. that extent, even the thesis that happiness is the intrinsic good is contingent. But let's just yeah. leave, let's leave that minimal notion of contingency out. Then, if happiness is the intrinsic good, then one way to make liberalism not a mere instrument to happiness is to say it's constitutive of happiness. And it sounds to me like you said something just very much like that when you say, when you refer the, 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 the pardon to the pardon utilitarianism on higher pleasures, and, and then tell, recount the story about Mill and sort of what it was that, in a sense, would pull him out of his depressions. This idea that, you know, these higher pleasures involve, in many, in many occasions, the exercise of one's liberty, right? Yes, yes. And especially one's speech. Yes. Yes, okay, yes, constitutive of what... In that sense, yes. For us humans as we are, yes. 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 Okay. Yes. Intrinsic, just intrinsic and contingent make me nervous. Right. Well, I'm only saying it because in ethics you have this basic notion of a distinction between intrinsic and instrumental goods, right? Right. And you are resisting the idea that for Mill, liberty is a mere in instrumental good. Right. And if it's not an instrumental good, but it's a good, then it has to be an intrinsic one. But how can it be an intrinsic one if happiness is the intrinsic good? Well, if happiness is this richer, thicker notion than Bentham meant. Yeah. Then things like liberty could be constitutive of it, right? I mean, could but be. No, I was, I was kind of moved before to say, um, not to totally. I don't want to disparage your line of questioning, but there's there's a way in which it might be out of the spirit of both men. Um, these kinds of abstract questions about is it an intrinsic or? I agree with that. Yeah, and Mill yeah. never uses the, those. Those that doesn't talk about instrumental goods. I mean, that's when. When we teach philosophy and books right. and textbooks and stuff, we then characterize it that way. And so you may be right that it's imposing a kind of abstraction that oversimplifies and maybe falsifies to a certain degree. Well, but even they just they wouldn't be that interested because they're both dedicated to their time and place and what kind of reflection yeah. is helpful yeah. for their political agenda as they're looking at it. And both of them seem to have this kind of methodological similarity, which is they're both expressed, both deeply impressed by experimental 
science, yeah. and they're both happy to say everything is up for grabs and give me some new information and I'll give you a new theory or a change yeah. theory. Well, I mean, you've just exposed, you know, how analytical, how analytic philosophers do philosophy, <laughs> the history right. of philosophy, and I'm guilty. I mean, I, I, I'm trained as an analytic philosopher, so I just in, immediately lapse into these sorts of uh, maybe overly simple constructions. Um, background too. So, um, but um, it's just very striking how in utilitarianism, Mill says happiness is the only thing that's good in itself. Um, uh, is the only thing um, that, that's, a, that's an end, and everything else is a means to that end. Which sounds an awful lot like an intrinsic good, and then and on liberty he seems to be 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 advocating on behalf of liberty in a way that's more than just as an instrument to happiness or as a means to happiness, and that then at least has caused a lot of scholars to wonder whether there's a conflict between the two, and one way to to dissolve the conflict is to say no they're consistent, um, 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 because uh, uh, liberty is part of what he means by happiness. Um, when, when, when we think of happiness in this richer sense than the very thin Benthamite uh, sense of, of just sort of, you know, quantifiable satisfaction, right, which you could like, give plus one or minus one or whatever. Um, so we're at, a, we're at an hour and a half, and I just want to, I want to see, see if we're at a point to where we can naturally wrap up and be ready for the next part. So tell me if this is fair to say, and if not, then get it to the point to where it is. Um, Locke introduces a very bare-bones, formal, structural liberalism that Mill then develops and fleshes out in a way that speaks to questions of the individual and individual freedom in an actual ongoing living society, more at the cultural and social level than at the formal and structural level. Um, in other words, it's not a discontinuity or a disagreement. It's a development of the liberalism that you find in Locke in its very skeletal form. Is that, do you think, fair? Yes, I think that's fair. I wouldn't call Locke bare bones just because I think it's sort of... Uh, it's, but, you know, bare bones is bad. S structural. Yes. Formal to a certain degree. Um, that, yeah, that I agree with. Um, um, and it's a... I agree also that the backbone remains the same. Or, well, we talked about how it might be different because it might be contingent instead of sort of... Yeah, that, that, I, I, I'm inclined to agree with you that that's not necessarily a helpful in this context that we're talking in, to sort of to bring that into it. Um, they both, they both are, are very much argue on behalf of individual liberty um, they have some different reasons in the sense that Mill focuses on certain things, matters of dependency between us. And actually, they both focus on dependency that we have relative to one another, just in different different areas. Um, one last thing I want to ask you, and that is in anticipation of what's coming next, is one of the things I want to ask next time is whether America is rough, was roughly begun as a classically liberal society whether it stayed one or whether it turned or whether it ceased to be one and if it ceased to be one when it ceased to be one and one of the things i want to ask you is because a lot of people bring this up that a lot of people would argue that classical liberalism in america died with the new deal okay mm -hmm. um and what i wanted to ask you was do you think that mill's commitment to the idea that 
while we are individuals and while we are, well, that our individual liberty is massively important, we are in a substantial way dependent upon one another. Um, do you think from that alone one can derive any sort of substantial welfareism, justify a substantial welfareism? Um, and do you think Mill would have would have, would have, would have, would have, would have taken it in that direction? Because that's the obvious departure for the New Deal, is you have a substantial welfareism that comes about with the New Deal that at least some people would say um, is at odds with the notion of individual liberty. Well, I confess I don't know the principles of political economy, which is one of Mill's major works, um, as well as I might. But apparently, I mean, Mill's generally credited as one of the first people who started to think that there was a positive role for government in reducing inequality, <clears throat> um, although in a much more, we're a long ways away from FDR. Right. But he ain't no Calvin Coolidge is the point. Right. Um, 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 he, he, he envisaged a role for, a positive role for, for, for government and society to sort of, to support individual endeavors, I guess. Right, because if we, I guess the idea is supposed to be right that if we are all depending on each other to the degree that Mill thinks we are, we can't have people in such bad conditions that they can't exercise their that they can't exercise their individual liberty. Right. <clears throat> Let me read again by yeah. way of answering you. Yeah. <clears throat> Capacity for noble nobler feelings is in most natures a very tender plant, easily killed, not only by hostile influences but by mere want of sustenance. Right. Right. Um, which is a phrase I marked last time. Right. So if you're homeless and living in a box under a bridge, yeah. you're not doing much, you're not exercising too many higher, nobler feelings, right? I mean, yes. <laughs> but I, I would want to say, because there's, there's a sort of discomfort that raises in me, certainly it raises a discomfort in many conservatives, to say in virtue of the fact that we're dependent or that we're fragile, that we're... How, how do you think conservatives, how do you think, um, um, you know, Ted Cruz would react to the idea of being a tender plant? You know, they would say, no, we're self-sufficient, we're tough guys. But Except it, you got your ass kicked by Trump, so you're obviously not that, uh, <laughs> anyway. <laughs> story, but, but the other... The other principle I need equally to make the motivation for, you know, making some redistribution of wealth would be <clears throat> the importance of liberty, the importance of higher pursuits, the importance of diversity. And not just that, the importance of maximizing the number of people who are enabled to engage in higher pursuits. That's right? true, too, yeah. Um, and I well, guess in Locke, in Locke, you can even make a case in Locke. I mean, I, I, you sort of pointed this out to me when I said it. I mean, Locke makes this point sort of negatively, right? And that mm -hmm. is, if too many people think they're not benefiting from the social contract, there's no more any reason to have it, right? Yeah. If I'm poorer and worse off in political society, then I, I, I would never agree to leave the state of nature to begin with, right? And so even in Locke's liberalism, which is... I would argue, uh, a bearer bones than Mills. Um, there is still some argument you could make for a certain level of, of, of violation of people's property, the people's property rights, the absoluteness of people's property rights. But saying, look, if we let too many people slide below, they're not going to be able to justify the social contract to themselves, and we're going to wind up back in the state of nature again, right? 
um, to, to, to presage the, the coming dialogue, I want to say that <clears throat> the case for distributing, uh, redistributing some wealth is made on liberal grounds. And so in that sense, the welfare liberal tradition is continuous with the classical liberal tradition. Okay. And it's not, like that. it's not at all a betrayal. I like that. I like that. Right. So, and so again, just to presage, I think the way this conversation is roughly going to go is we're going to say, well, was the New Deal a, con a continuation or, or, or a, a, a break? And I think probably we're both going to agree, it's, although I might push for a while, that it's a continuity. And then the question is, well, when, there, when was there a break? And I think we both kind of agree, well, certainly there's, it's broken now, right? Um, with the stuff on campuses and stuff, and so maybe maybe we're going to ascribe the break not to the New Deal, but to the rise of the New Left uh, during the '60s. You know, out of SDS and which comes out of Frankfurt School style Marxism, right? I mean, is that broadly speaking? I'm certainly going to see a more fundamental break. Okay. With that. Okay. Well, Mr. Ottlinger, um, this was terrific, and. Uh, uh, Really, really, we got a lot in, and um, so uh, for the audience, uh, up next is going to be what happens. What happened to liberalism in America? <laughs> um, and uh, we will uh, hopefully do that one pretty soon, maybe within a week or so. I have to go to New York for a few days, but then when I come back, hopefully we can do it while it's still relatively fresh. Will do. All right, all right, my friend. Thank you so much, and I will see you on the pages of the Agora. Okay, good. All right, take care. Okay. Thanks for listening to Meaning of Life TV. You can help support this content by remembering to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. You can subscribe to all Meaning of Life episodes or to a specific program by going to our subscribe page at meaningoflife.tv slash subscribe. There you can sign up for podcast downloads via iTunes or Stitcher, or you can subscribe to our email and we'll send you an alert every time we post a new episode.